All right, good morning, everyone. This is an interview that I am conducting with Dr. Roger Hodkinson. I, sir, I am so grateful that you are here. You are standing up for my two-year-old little boy, and I will do everything to get your message out to the entire world. And my goal is to have 10,000 people on these interviews that I do with you, because you, you are a true hero. And um, I have so many questions for you, so many questions for you. Um, We've already watched the interview, the first one we did last week. So I, I, there's no need to introduce yourself. Like people can go back and watch that first one. Well, I just want to get straight into questions. Doctor, do masks prevent the spread of COVID? Well, I think before we start the meeting, I'd like to introduce a little bit of, um, I hate to say it's humor, but do you like my t-shirt? I think I think that says everything about the times that we're in, um, the suppression that's going on, and the analogies to regimes that we'd rather not um, mimic um, because they've all gone down in flames. But that's the general direction we're going in. So yes, good morning to all of you. Um, it's it's a pleasure to be part of such an energetic group and. Um, Hats off to Jennifer for her incredible energy, passion, and um, and success in 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 what you're about. Um, I I congratulate you all. Thank you very very much. Thank you very much. So my question: Do masks prevent the spread of COVID? Uh, no. What else do you want to know? Does hand sanitizer <laughs> prevent the spread of COVID? Let me keep this simple. Nothing works. Nothing could work. Nothing did work. And therefore, nothing will work, including all of the above. Masks, hand sanitizers, social distancing, lockdowns, etc., etc. It's a travesty of lies concocted by individuals, politicians, who are looking no further than the next election, thinking that their bravado at the cost of society is going to get them re-elected, when in fact, it's probably the opposite of that. So to answer your first question in more detail, masks do not work for a variety of reasons. Um, the first reason is, from a strictly physical perspective, the mesh size is nowhere close to restraining a virus particle that is significantly smaller than the holes in the mask. It's intuitive, it's obvious, it shouldn't need to be stated. You cannot solve a nanoscale problem, nano meaning a measurement of length, very small length. You cannot solve a nanoscale problem with a macro scale solution, namely masks. That's the first point. Second point is that um, the various so-called authorities on this matter, WHO, CDC, um, FDA, I'm not sure if the FDA, but certainly CDC, WHO, um, and Fauci, flip-flop Fauci himself, um, have, they've all stated in previous flu epidemics that masks do not work. There's absolutely no difference in terms of the physics of what's going on here to um, no difference between 
stopping the flu with a mask and stopping a coronavirus with a mask. The, the two challenges from a physical perspective are absolutely identical. But the nail in the coffin, um, the, the, there's, a, there's an enormous literature on this, um, on masks. Um, and I should say, as a side comment, um, in any scientific um, endeavor where you're trying to prove a hypothesis, um, there are always reports to the contrary. And what's required is to look at them all uh, with a meta-analysis uh, at arm's length, if you like, half close your eyes on a on a wet and misty morning and decide if you've got enough uh, to pronounce on whether something does or does not work. Um, the mass literature has hundreds of references. Um, Dr. Bhattacharya of the Great Barrington Declaration sent me that list um, uh, back in November, uh, and it's it's extended to date. Um, but the but the big the big uh, publication of course was the the study that's called the danish study in which um people were um sequestered um and some wore masks and others didn't the two groups um and the the group that were wearing masks um had this more or less um within statistical variation they had uh, the same prevalence of being positive for um, for uh, the PCR test um, as the other 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 group, and so the evidence is overwhelming. Masks simply don't work, and um, there was no reason for them other than politicians demanding of their minions <clears throat> that uh, something be done that shows. Uh, that I am doing something for the public to appreciate that they're concerned and they're doing the best they can. Well, they happened. The, the that's the first thing they pulled out of the hat, of course, and uh, they continued with the madness because there is nothing else that they could think of doing. Simply because there is nothing else, as I stated, nothing, nothing, nothing works. Nothing works to prevent the spread of COVID? Nothing whatsoever. Masks don't work. Social distancing by implication doesn't work. Social distancing is simply a way of potentially reducing the concentration of what's in the air getting at you. But if the ultimate defense is a mask that doesn't work, social distancing is a moot issue. It, it's irrelevant, totally irrelevant. And regardless of that, um, there's growing evidence, um, again, of the, what might be called the intuitively obvious, that the spread um, in the air um, of COVID-19 is not just with droplets, but it's with aerosols, in, which is a, an extremely fine dispersion of um, particles that allow them to be carried in air currents um, over significant distances. So once you say that you're spreading by aerosol as well as by droplets, which fall to the ground very quickly, once you start saying that there's aerosol spread as well as droplet spread, then clearly uh, every aisle in Walmart is a risk, a terrible risk, a risk that you have to um, expose yourself to whether someone's walking by you or not. 
hence that falls like a, a, a stack of cards as well. So masks don't work, social distancing doesn't work um, as an extension of that. I was in a store yesterday and I saw the, the store clerk, she was wearing a mask and then there was plexiglass in front of her and she, you know, she's just saying like she has to wear this mask eight hours there all day. It's like, why do we have plexiglass? What? Well, the, the, there's the potential entry of, of COVID through the, um, through the surface of the eye, the, the, um, the cornea and the sclera of the eyeball. That's certainly a potential access point, quite apart from breathing it in. Um, but again, uh, it's, it's not going to protect you because things get around those, those visors. And, and not only that, but I mean, the masks that we see being worn are, are not, not worn appropriately, even if you were trying to optimize them. You know, they're, they're hanging, they're not clipped around the nose they're hanging off the nose they're being touched and therefore you and then you squeeze the lemons um they're wet they're a beautiful culture medium for bacteria um and so on and so on there's there are complications of the skin for people forced to wear them eight hours a day at work um it, that gets even worse, of course, with the N95 masks, which are worn by healthcare workers. But even they don't have the mesh size to prevent um, the virus entering into their upper respiratory tract. But what they certainly do is create a lot of skin complications. And then you have the the reduction in 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 blood oxygen level and a raised carbon dioxide level, which um, for most people is not for material, but for people that um, have um, emphysema, for example, it is relevant. And then, of course, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out if flip flop Fauci says, you know, and does in public. <laughs> the guy's such an idiot. Um, you know, if one mask doesn't work, try two. Uh, maybe next week it's three. And um, Eventually, of course, when you wear 10, uh, you will absolutely never get COVID because you'll be dead of hypoxia. Um, your choice. The idiocy is the idiocy is of the most gigantic proportions. It defies an adjective to describe it. Thank you. Is the COVID vaccine approved by the FDA? Is what approved by the FDA? The COVID vaccine. Yes, it is, um, but under emergency use authorization. And uh, it's very important that uh, people appreciate the significance of that statement. It's predicated on the interpretation of the mortality statistics as constituting an emergency. An emergency in a public health setting um, has very precise definitions. And um, part of our group uh, in Alberta was the past head of emergency services for Alberta, Lieutenant Colonel Redman, David Redman, who actually wrote the manual for emergency services for Alberta. <laughs> and, and he has stated categorically that as per the manual, which they never pulled off the shelf to operate 
in terms of how to react to this in a measured way, as opposed to the knee-jerk arbitrary reactions which have taken place. Um, Mr. Redmond has stated categorically that this is not an emergency. Yes, older people are dying in higher numbers of this than they did with the flu, but again, that's a matter of relativity. If I could, ex if I could express that in a, in a simple way, um, if in fact um, you, know, you were granny and I was your doctor, and I walked in to see you one day with having been diagnosed with COVID, and I, I could say to you one of two things. I could say to you, hey, granny, you know what? You, you've got COVID, I'm afraid. Um, and your risk of dying of this is about four times, three to four times that of the flu. It's, it's pretty serious and we're, we're going to look after you. Don't worry. And, and granny looks up and she's petrified. Three to four times increased risk. On the other hand, I could have said to granny, hey, granny, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, it's true you've got COVID, but I just want to reassure you, uh, if it was the flu, you had a you had a 99% chance of surviving, but with COVID, it's 96%. So I, I don't think that's anything to worry about. And Granny would smile at you, at me, and she would say, "Oh, thanks, Doc. That's that's very reassuring." Those are exactly the same statistics expressed in very different ways. So it's not an emergency, um, but that is the predicate. Being stating that it's an emergency is the predicate for having the latitude to introduce emergency measures, the mandates and the vaccine and so on. So we, we can talk about the vaccine, about it being untested, but that, that's, that's, the, that's the reason it's being introduced is because it's, it's stated to be a huge public health emergency, which it's not. Understood, thank you. Jody, you have a question. Your hand is raised. Please go ahead. Jody, you'll need to unmute yourself. Sorry. Are you saying that all uh, injections are essentially experimental if they haven't been specifically approved with the FDA and gone through the proper testing? That's exactly what I'm saying. Vaccines traditionally have a, or even produced by the usual methods, which is, which this is not. Um, vaccines traditionally have an extended period of clinical trials. Uh, two to four years is not unusual. In order to ensure that unpredictable, unexpected um, adverse events are not statistically significant. And you can only do that by having a significant period of time. These vaccines have only been tested for six months. Um, the, the women, um, the pregnant women who were part of the study were not, in, were not pregnant at the start of the study. The only pregnant women that have, been, that have been studied are those 40 or so that happened to get pregnant during the study. That does not constitute anywhere close to a statement that the vaccine is safe. Um, and, and indeed, um, subsequent events have shown that to be categorically true. Uh, we're seeing a massive increase in even the just the reported deaths 
due to vaccination in the region of 4,000 now in the States and 4,000 in the UK. Uh, Canada has a terrible reporting system, so it's utterly unreliable. Um, so we have we have an enormous number of reported deaths following uh, va vaccination, much more so than with any other vaccine that's ever been introduced. And it's it's simply untested in the in the usual in the usual sense. It's not being tested in pregnant women. You know, the last time I checked, uh, I'm speaking to a lot of ladies here. <laughs> uh, you know more about this than I do. Um, last time I checked, pregnancy takes nine months, doesn't it? Well, six weeks might just be a lot less than that. Six months might just be a lot less than that. But more to the point, even nine months is ridiculously short if you're talking about the potential impact of this vaccine on fertility. Um, I'm talking about miscarriages, one-time one -time miscarriages in women who've just been vaccinated. Um, that might not uh, happen with subsequent pregnancies, but still, one is enough, one is too many. Um, but much more worrying, in my opinion, um, is the uh, reality that the receptor for this spike protein that's being produced by the vaccination, by the gallon, um, the receptor for that is called the ACE, as in the ACE of spades, the ACE2 receptor, which is widely distributed in the body, uh, particularly um, in the placenta and in the testis. It's not in the ovary, but it's in the testis. Now, you know, we all hope that this does not reflect uh, the potential for um, sterility in males, and in particular boys, who are the next group of people to be slaughtered by this, this vaccine. So in many respects, this, this is a totally untested vaccine. It is not safe in the usual meaning of the word medically. And for that reason, it is um, using it contravenes that very important medical ethic of informed consent. People are not being told about the potential risks of dying or having serious consequences from this vaccine. So that, that's my, my summary statement on why, why these vaccines are unsafe. They're being introduced under emergency use authorization, which is predicated by the opinion, incorrect in many people's view, that this is an emergency. It's not an emergency. Therefore, the vaccine is not needed under emergency authorization. And therefore, people should not be subjected to risks that would otherwise have been eliminated by an appropriate a trial of appropriate length. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm scared to ask you this next question. And I don't know if you know yet, but what are the possible, what's the possible harm that could happen to my two-year-old little boy by being in close proximity with someone who has received a COVID injection? Uh, COVID injection? Um, that general condition has now got a name, contagious vaccinosis. Um, a person who believes that some change in their body has happened, in, un, a person who's not being vaccinated believes that some change in their body has happened because of being in the close proximity of someone who has been vaccinated. Um, 
it's it's very difficult. I don't want you to get technical here on a short call. It's very difficult to find a plausible way that that could happen. Um, but it is being reported in sufficient numbers that it should be excluded as a risk. And that could be done actually relatively simply over a few weeks um, by isolating someone totally um, uh, for two weeks to make sure they're not getting COVID, that they're having samples taken to show that they don't have it in their nose anyway, and they're living in a total isolation for two weeks. And then they give themselves a vaccine and then all kinds of bodily fluids and expired air are tested for whether or not the spike protein is present. It certainly would not be the virus. The, the vaccine could never give you an intact virus in order to be infectious to somebody else. The only conceivable way there could be transmission of some effect is by an excess amount of the spike protein, which is being produced intentionally by the vaccine in the vaccinated person, somehow getting into an unvaccinated person and causing effects. It's not very plausible. It's largely because of the dose that will be required to do that. Um, but the, the possibility of it could be excluded very quickly by an experiment, as I've described. Thank you. So, are you so? Does trend is transmission a thing? Like, when we get in close proximity with people who have received the COVID injection, is that a is that happening to women? Is women's hormones changing, or is there is transmission happening or not? Well, the, the, there are claims to that effect. Um, that's exactly what I was just describing. Um, there are claims to that effect. Um, there are a large number of them. Um, there are obviously other potential explanations, and I'm not labeling all these people as as ignorant and hysterical. Uh, that would be foolish. Um, if there are these claims at a time of great political, where the political temperature is boiling, um, it's very appropriate to eliminate that with an appropriate experiment. Who's doing the experiment? No one at this time, to my knowledge. Thank you. So do you feel that I should, like, as a mom, would it be in my best interest to keep my son away from people who have received a COVID injection or should I not worry about it? At this point, I, I wouldn't worry about it. And I tell you why, because I, I don't think it's plausible at the end of the day. I may be wrong uh, and proven wrong in that, but I, I don't think it's a significant risk. Um, on the other hand, um, restricting a child's movement because of not wishing to become in, in the presence of people who have been vaccinated, to me, that could have much more significant psychological consequences than than trying to protect them. I think it's a matter of balanced risk. Um, we know that constraining behavior by children is harmful. Um, how harmful is, is impossible to define, as opposed to a risk, which is at the present time, just a hypothesis. 
Understood. Thank you very much. Does anyone else have questions? If you have questions, just raise your hand on the reactions. Jennifer, there were a bunch of questions that were asked in the first meeting. Can we address some of those questions, please? Please go ahead, Cynthia. Or Jody. Or, well, actually, Cynthia, you have your hand up. Please go ahead. Yeah, I was um my both of my sons, um, wonderful young men uh in their 20s, but they have been donating blood for many, many years. Um, just wondering, um, a like if you donate blood and you've had the vaccine. What consequences will that have for having a transfusion for other people um, with the vaccine in it? And I guess maybe highly sought after pure blood, <laughs> you know, um, just wonder to, on their level, because I mean, they're both considering the vaccine and I'm, I'm, I'm pulling my hair out, um, you know, just at the thoughts of that. But I, I thought of them as blood donors. How, how, does, how does that affect our people, our world? Well, I, I'm not aware of the current um, Red Cross uh, Canadian Blood Services um, policy on, on accepting donations from people who have just been vaccinated. Um, the spike protein that's produced even if it washes out into the general circulation which i think it does in a significant number of people um, that is going to be eliminated fairly quickly uh, certainly i would expect within a couple of weeks so delaying a blood donation a couple of weeks is neither here nor there um, and there may be a policy by red cross to refuse it anyway um, of course given the given the reality of um natural infection with COVID-19, which is of course what we should be encouraging here, because it's with the whole virus, not just with a, a tiny portion of the virus, you get much more efficient immunity from COVID by being exposed to the virus itself than you do with a mere fraction of it, the spike protein. Um, so, you know, the majority of people, or let's say a significant number of people who are just walking in to, to donate blood, who might have been vaccinated more than two weeks ago, or have not been vaccinated at all, um, many of them will have antibodies to COVID-19 in their blood, and they will also have uh, lymphocytes in their blood, the T cells, the, immune, the cellular side of the immune system they will also have those in the blood that they're donating um, to um, be ready to attack um, uh, the virus if if it's given to someone who is um, who's receiving the transfusion so i i don't think it's a significant problem um, red cross may well be excluding people who've been vaccinated within the previous two weeks it would be prudent i think because you don't know what load of spike protein you may be suddenly giving to someone else and, and just a little point there uh, this general um, type of vaccination rna vaccinations um, they have been experimented on for quite some time it's the first time it's ever been used on a mass scale in humans but uh, they've been worked on for a number of years actually so it didn't come you know it wasn't right out of the box 
um, there was a great deal of work that had been done previously. But one of the one of the principal problems that they had with RNA virus um, vaccines was getting the dose right. In other words, the amount of RNA that you have in each injection for the vaccine, because for it's very very. Um, how could I phrase it? Um, you, you may not have enough to create a good immune reaction. On the other hand, you may have too much to create an overwhelming immune reaction. And to try to get it in the middle um, was one of the principal difficulties introducing this vaccine. Um, the, the flip side of that difficulty is, of course, that um, by implication, as we all just look different on this, um, on this call, our genes are different. Um, our immune systems are different. We have different capabilities in our immune system. And some people will be responding much more vigorously to this spike protein that's produced and, than other people would. Um, and if you have a very vigorous production of spike protein, as in some people, it's quite easy to see how that washes out into the general circulation and produces, uh, in my opinion, um, many of the problems that are being reported of thromboses and bleeding and menstrual abnormalities and so on. You might be all interested to know that the ACE2 receptor in the endometrium, the lining of the uterus, uh, the expression of that actually increases with age, which may be one of the reasons we're seeing um, perimenopausal women um, having a sudden change in their, in their periods. The, the endometrium is the lushest, most fragile um, tissue in the human body. It's meant to be that way, to be a very receptive environment for, um, for an ovum that comes down the fallopian tubes. Um, it's intended to be a most luxuriant, uh, soft, fragile place. And, and that's why you know, women uh, have menstrual periods because it's so easy to disrupt that lining um, and shed, uh, which I think is, I think is what happens with um, excess spike protein um, affecting the blood vessels lining in, inside the inner layer of the uterus, the endometrium. I think that's probably the most likely explanation for those those reports. Not in not in unvaccinated women, but in vaccinated women. Thank you. I have another question here in the chat. How safe is it to receive a COVID vaccination? Uh, I think you should rephrase that. How unsafe is it to receive a COVID? It's, it's a roulette game. Um, we don't know who's going to have a serious complication. And so if it's not needed in the first place, certainly for the working well, who are not risking their lives to anywhere, any greater degree than they were with the flu. If that's a risk that's worth taking, and we, we've done it every year, we, we, in the winter in previous years, when we walked out of the front door, door, we weren't petrified about shaking people's hands. We just went about life as normal. So the risk for the working well is, is so low that it should not result in fear. Um, and, and it should also, in my opinion, 
not result in a reflex reaction to take something that could potentially harm you in in very serious and various ways including death the reporting as i said earlier of death attributed to in close proximity with vaccination and unexplained otherwise uh, is in the region of 45,000 people in the US and in Britain at this time and it's climbing that's a massive massive increase in previous in deaths reported with previous vaccines and it, it is itself grossly underreported because of the tendency of death certificates to be written willy-nilly um, without necessarily attributing it to to COVID. So you you really can't put a, a number on it is, is the, the nature of your question. You really can't put a number on it right now because the reporting system is notoriously bad. It's massively underreported, not just this time, but well documented with previous vaccination program, vaccination um, introductions. Uh, it's an individual decision as to whether or not you personally think uh, the risk of dying of COVID, which is already all that, all that matters, getting it is for the working world is, is generally speaking trivial. It is killing some people in that age group under 60 who are otherwise perfectly well. That is certainly happening. You can see that in the statistics reported on, by the government on their, on their own website here in Alberta. That is a fact. Um, but um, if, that, if you were not going to be one of those people, um, you might be one of the people who have a very serious complication from getting the vaccine itself. And that becomes a very personal decision to weigh those two risks. In my own personal opinion, I'm not advocating, I'm not prescribing medicine here for any of you as patients. But in my own personal opinion, um, there are many other ways of handling this um, without getting vaccinated. Uh, vitamin D in particular is a very powerful, non-specific booster, if you like, of your t-cell your cellular immunity and everyone in my opinion should be taking 5,000 international units of vitamin d a day uh, it's not going to be harmful at all totally non-toxic and uh, it's cheap it's available uh, it's not by prescription um, so that that's my answer it's a personal decision um, but i don't think the the risk of balancing the two statistics of dying of something that's not likely as opposed to getting a complication that could also kill you that is also unlikely but but much higher in relative risk than it is has been with previous vaccines that have been introduced the lot the short answer is do i recommend people take the vaccine no um certainly not for the working well and and it, for the older people in nursing homes with comorbidities it's a more uh, difficult decision but even there um 
you know, the the reality is when COVID gets into a nursing home, it, it doesn't kill them all. Um, we all, especially as you get older, we all have increasing immunity to the many and various bugs that we've come across in our entire lives, um, including the coronavirus that causes ordinary coughs and colds, not this one. And so there's a great deal of cross-reactivity in the immune system, which enables us to pick off sufficient similarities in a bug um, to knock it off, um, kill it. Uh, it, it. Just because it's a, a different bug genetically doesn't mean to say the immune system doesn't recognize enough similarities that um, it will kill it. So it, it's a personal decision, but I, I don't think the the scale of risk um, for the working well uh, justifies anyone getting the vaccine and most emphatically not children. Thank you. And we had a conversation last Sunday um, on this exact topic of, of children getting vaccinated. Can you speak to that, please? Well, <clears throat> It's child abuse, period. It's institutionalized child abuse. I find it staggering that the ministries of health across this country and internationally are contemplating vaccinating children with an experimental vaccine that could have all kinds of long-term consequences for a condition that they brush off and are not dying from. There will be no deaths in this province under the age of 19, even with their warped statistics. They're just lusting to label any and every death as due to COVID, and there hasn't been a single one under 19. Indeed, internationally, it's exquisitely rare, and remember, that vulnerability uh, doesn't start at the age of 75. There are many children, sadly, who have extreme vulnerabilities to infection. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if any children who are dying of this internationally are in that category of having serious underlying disease. So the, the, the answer to your question is, why, why are you even thinking of doing this, it's the most grotesque intrusion into a child's life that you're asking the parents to make, the decision is the parents to make, without information about the reality of this vaccine being in a very strict way unsafe. It does not make any sense whatsoever, and as I said, in my opinion, it's a way of, it's institutionalized child abuse. It's grotesque. And it could have all kinds, look, the whole purpose of extended clinical trials is to di discover the unknown that could not be known, could not be predicted. The old saying of you don't know what you don't know is so true for vaccines. So if there are these theoretical, no more than that at this point, 
theoretical risks of male infertility. Why in God's name would you inject boys with this stuff? It, it, it's, it's just so outrageously stupid. And potentially very, very harmful. If there were a fertility problem with boys, it may be permanent. It may be temporary. We don't know. Um, we just don't know. And so the studies should be done before it's used in children who are not going to die or suffer significantly from it. Remember that children have always died of the flu in previous years. It's tragic. It happens. We can't stop it. Nor should we change this time around, in my opinion. You know, from a just a mom, I'm just a mom, I'm a businesswoman, you know, I trust in the medical system, I trust in the government, and this is very, very disturbing, very disturbing. Um, yeah. I, I, I wanted to digress, if I might, along those lines, Jennifer. Um, I recently became aware of a movement in Britain um, run by a retired pediatrician who is of uh, the same opinion as me about um, vaccinating kids. And if you look at this whole COVID mess more globally, um, we've, we've lost repeated battles um, on PCR, on masks, on lockdowns, and so on. Those battles have been lost. Um, there are two battles to come. One is the battle to protect children, and the second one is the battle to stop vaccine passports. There is a huge need in Canada for a coordinated movement that's focused exclusively on the need to stop vaccinations in children. And I know you're a very energetic woman. Um, I know you're, you're very successful in everything that you do, but there is a limit to everyone's capabilities, hours of the day, and running a family as, as well as a business. But there is a need for an organization of that nature, a national organization, that is perhaps fronted by retired pediatricians who are not going to be threatened by the College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, who are older and therefore more traditional, um, but more importantly, immune to attack. Um, if uh, a few of those retired pediatricians could be identified and be willing to be the front for an organization of that type, um, they would need a lot of obviously logistic and financial support in order to be effective. Um, uh, on the last call that I was on, um, there's an organization, not for kids now, but there's an organization, in um, an international organization, uh, largely in Europe, called Doctors for COVID Ethics. And it has all the big names on it. And I was, I was privileged to be invited to the to their group. Um, and the last session focused precisely on children and a, a need for a media campaign that has uh, 
perhaps uh, a website, but rotating slogans that could pop up not just on that website, but on many sites of investigative journalists and sites such as your own. Uh, rotating, just like the importance of rotating messages on cigarette packs, um, I, I volunteered to um, to craft some of those. I sent them out to them just yesterday. And um, after this call, I can send them to you to see if it gets any traction with you. Um, the messaging is so important. It's a three-second read. We all know the stuff that goes along with advertising, marketing, getting attention, and so on. Um, so I just put that out there. Um, it's it's uh, it's a very important battle. We've lost all the others. No point in fighting them. I mean, they're, they're, it's just they're just done. Um, focus on the ones that we can win, the, the ones in the future, and the big one right now is children. Well, I very much look forward to receiving that and being a part of standing up for for the health of humanity. Um, Jody, you have your hand up. Please go ahead and ask a question. You'll need to unmute. Hi, doctor. Thank you. Um, I've recently received an article with regards to Oxford University and um, with regards to the AstraZeneca, uh, I'll just read the first part of it. Uh, Oxford designer of COVID vaccine admits vaccine will only sterilize 70% of the population. Note, Oxford is where one of the vaccines originates. Uh, we'd like to draw attention to the fact that Professor Sir John Bell is the one that is, um, uh, let's see, sorry, Professor of Medicine at Oxford University and a part of the Gavi team. Sir John is a member of the SAGE Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies and sits on the government, government's vaccine task force. <laughs> Have you heard about this, sir? I've not heard that particular report. I'd like to see it, if you could pass it through Jennifer to get to me. Um, yeah. SAGE is, oh, it's such a cleverly chosen acronym, SAGE. We are SAGE. We're wise, you're not. Listen to us, you idiots out there. Um, Sage is, is full of idiots, government sycophants. They're scared of their own shadow and just in there for their pension. It's pathetic. They're despised in Britain. So anything that's coming out of Sage should be automatically shredded. Um, as to the likely prevalence of fertility, I've it seems like a, a very scary number to me. I'd like to see the reason, the reason for it. And um, it, but as I said, fertility is is certainly as theoretical, underlined in neon at this time. I'm not a scaremonger. I take vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, right? I'm in favour of kids getting measles vaccine. I don't believe in that causes autism. All that stuff. All right. Mainstream. I'm a mainstream guy but I can smell a rat a mile away. So yeah, it's important to be cautious. Nothing more than that, just cautious. Traditional medical caution. 
when you're faced with a risk that you can't quantify. It's not happening. And that's why this is so intensely frustrating and makes my blood pressure boil. Thank you, Jody. I look forward to receiving that document and I will forward it on. Um, Dr. Roger, you talked about that Canada has a terrible reporting system. Can you speak more to that? Like, like why and what, what, what can we do to improve that? Oh, it's too late in the day. Um, it, it's just not, um, the data is not being collated um, in an effective way into a national database. Um, it's all voluntary, it's unstructured. Um, you know, if, if a doctor wants to report it, or it sounds like time to me, um, you know, I'm going, it's going to get legs, I'm going to get involved in things, I'm just going to ignore it. Um, it it's, it's, it's just abysmal. Um, it, it's, it's the laughing stock of the Western world compared with much more organized ways of collecting information in Britain and uh, in uh, and in the USA. But it's, the, the, the horse is out of the barn now. It's, there's just no point in in trying to collect information in, in Canada. Um, the infrastructure isn't there. Wow. That's shocking to know. That's a first world country. Okay, I have another question for you. So I've watched some other doctors talk about the value of taking ivermectin and HCQ, which I don't really know how to pronounce. Um, and I talked to my, called my family doctor to inquire about this and she had no comment. If we are, if we are, it's a good thing to get ivermectin and HCQ to remain healthy. And that's, first of all, is, that's a question for you, is it? And second of all, where do we get it? Well, you can't get it um, because doctors are being prohibited, ivermectin. Doctors are being specifically prohibited from prescribing it, which again is a line you don't want to cross with the colleges. But even if they did prescribe it, it's not available. Either it's being warehoused in Ottawa, uh, in the case of some, you know, indescribable uh, excel acceleration of this disease, uh, or it's being used so much internationally that no one can find it. Um, ivermectin has an incredible history of safety um, for use against worm parasites in tropical countries. Um, it's used, you know, an enormous amount of ivermectin is, is used internationally. Um, and it, it is, there's a substantial body of evidence that it acts to um, prevent uh, potentially prevent uh, COVID infections, uh, but certainly has a positive effect on people that have sim significant symptoms. Uh, there's a Dr. Tess Laurie, um, who you may want to look up, um, who is the chief proponent of this. She's absolutely mainstream, absolutely mainstream, uh, absolutely blue chip um, uh, researcher, comparing all these various clinical trials. There's a big one going on in Oxford right now, which uh, Oxford, England, which may um, may show efficacy. But, but here's the much bigger point about these agents. If on the one hand, these medical officers of health are saying that this is an emergency and therefore we must have an emergency vaccine, which is not tested. If on the one hand they're saying 
that. They cannot also say that we will prohibit agents in an emergency, which may help control this disease, if they are shown to be incredibly safe, which the vaccine is not. The vaccine is not safe, but these agents that may be effective are safe. And so they can't have it both ways, but they want to have it both ways. Ivermectin, in my opinion, should be liberally prescribed by physicians in Canada, just as it is in the States and in Britain, um, for physicians who individually believe that it might be beneficial. The traditional role of a physician to look at all the evidence and interpret it for a particular patient in front of them. That is traditional medicine without the state getting involved whatsoever. Now, is ivermectin something that, that like me, I could take? I don't have COVID, I haven't had COVID. Is it something that I can go to my doctor and request to have, like, well, I did request this and she had no comment, but is, is this something that I should be able to take in order to maintain my health? Or is this ivermectin only something I should take if I were to get COVID? Yeah, in the latter, uh, you wouldn't take it on a daily basis, like a vitamin, for example. Um, and I would caution anyone listening not to um, get ivermectin that's intended for animals. The formulation is specific for animals. You don't know the dosage. It's, it's applied by different means. It's not a tablet. It's a liquid um, and so on and so on. But don't go down that route. You could be um, getting into so much more trouble by taking a, a product that's meant for animals um, and not for humans. Thank you. So there's a question in the comments here. Does having COVID cause long-term complications as reported? For example, lung damage? Well, the, the general condition is called long COVID. Um, it, um, it's currently under investigation as to whether it represents a real complication of COVID infection, or whether uh, it represents um, a variety of psychosomatic complaints which people are attributing to having had COVID. I believe that that's the more likely explanation at this time, um, that it's not a continuation of the infection or a complication of the infection. Um, Certainly people who've had serious COVID infections and been in the ICU and, you know, damn nearly died. Um, they, many of those people um, will have specific um, target organ damage, lung, heart, kidneys, and so on, um, tragically. Uh, that's quite different from long COVID. Long COVID is a constellation of very vague symptoms that are hard to pinpoint um, fatigue for example um, fatigue does happen after the flu um, but there are many other explanations for fatigue it's it's un, it's an untested theory right now thank you and then the next question in the chat is does having covid affect fertility we don't know uh, COVID itself, the infection itself, um, uh, again, we, we don't know that as opposed to a complication of the vaccine. Um, we don't know either. Um, 
what we do know is that um, COVID is associated with um, a lot of production of the spike protein. It happens to be attached to the virus with the actual infection, right? Uh, the, the spike protein is on the surface of the virus. It's not free floating as it is with vaccination. So it would be potentially a, a different mechanism, um, but still um, potentially the virus attacking the endometrium, the virus attacking the, the, the testis. Um, there were reports with um, SARS, the previous corona um, pandemic. Um, there were reports with SARS of orchitis, which is the technical term for inflammation of the testis. There were reports of that uh, with with SARS. Um, the frequency of orchitis, inflammation of the testis um, with um, COVID and with the vaccination is, is currently not reported. Thank you. Jody, you have your hand up. Please go ahead and ask your question. You'll need to unmute. Um, just referring back to your question on ivermectin, I, uh, I called a couple of pharmacies. I have friends that are pharmacists and asked them if uh, their doctors are, if they're getting prescriptions for ivermectin. I was told that ivermectin has been uh, taken off the shelves and uh, they're, they're not prescribing it any longer. Now that we know that it actually helps. Um, it, that product is made by Merck, and I've just gotten a new post that Merck has just come out with a new drug that can help to protect us from COVID. So, you know, it's really obvious what's going on here with regards to the pharmaceutical companies. You know, ivermectin is obviously, it's out there, it's been out there for 35 years, well-tested, and we know it's an anti-inflammatory working on the bronchial system and lungs to be able to take down inflammation. Doctors are reporting in, third, in uh, South America, there are some in the United States saying, yeah, they just give their doctor, either their patient this pill, 24 to 36 hours later, they're fine after having these COVID types of symptoms. So ivermectin seems to be working. It's uh, been around for a long time. Uh, fatality rate is something like 12 in 30 years and uh and uh it's been pulled i know it's inexcusable as i said you can't have it both ways if you're vaccinating people because it's an emergency you should take the dogs off uh, physicians and allow them to prescribe ivermectin if they so wish Thank you. Okay. Uh, so we're at 11. Dr. Dr. Hawkinson, do you have time to go a little bit longer? I'm at your service. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, doctor. That is just remarkable. Okay. Regarding transmission, if I am a vaccine, if I am around a vaccinated person, we'll be clear, COVID, COVID vaccination, can I potentially transmit to my 20-something children who are unvaccinated? So let, let let me clarify this. If 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 I've been if I have received a COVID in COVID vaccination, can I transmit that to people who have been unvaccinated with the COVID vaccine? I think we covered that question earlier on. Uh, contagious vaccinosis, the transmission of something from a vaccinated person to an unvaccinated person. I think we've covered that. Um, 
there are various theoretical ways that could happen as i as i mentioned i don't want to get too technical but the 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 second way it could happen is if someone has been vaccinated today um that does not give you immediate immunity to COVID-19, um, nor is it perfect even if you were to wait more than two to four weeks. There's still a failure rate of the vaccine. But if you have just been just been vaccinated, um, you could theoretically, unknown to yourself, be have a subclinical infection in your nose, upper respiratory tract, that's not giving you any symptoms, that could, again, theoretically transmit the virus to other people simply because it's just an infection that you're spreading. Um, that general theory of what's called asymptomatic transmission of people who are handling it perfectly well silently um, it's been shown pretty categorically that asymptomatic transmission does not occur to a significant degree. And indeed, from an intuitive perspective, uh, clearly, in order to transmit an infection from me to you, I need to be discharging into the environment a sufficient dose of the infectious agent in order for it to be picked up in a sufficient quantity by you to create an infection in you. Um, there are a number of tenets in infectious disease in terms of how disease gets transmitted. One is dose, the number of, organ number of organisms. The second one is virulence, how, um, how vicious a disease is it? Is it Ebola or is it the common cold, for example? Um, the route of transmission, um, are we mainlining um, and getting it into our veins or are we simply breathing it in? Um, and then there's the, the important thing of individual differences, um, your previous state of immunity. Um, and uh, quite apart from that, the, the uniqueness of each individual's immune system and its ability to react to very specific targets. Um, those are the basic tenets of, of transmissibility of infection from person A to person B. Um, but it, it could be that the most, most viable hypothesis for contagious vaccinosis is that people who've just been vaccinated happen to have uh, some um, asymptomatic infection that they're then spreading. But even then, that's why it gets so tenuous, even then the dose the dose that they're uh, discharging into the environment is, is so low um, that it may not be anywhere close to enough to infect someone else. Thank you for thank you for answering that. I just, you know, like 16 days ago now, something happened to me. Like I've been, I have been around friends who have received the COVID vaccine nothing happened and then I spent a few hours at my home with a friend who had recently received the the vaccine been about 30 days and um, then I woke up at 4 a.m the next morning with heavy heavy bleeding and intense cramps which is very out of the normal for me and um, you know I made a live video about it and I thought people would tell me I'm absolutely crazy and I got over 100 women comment that same things were happening to them and I got six medical professionals contact me 
and tell me it's happening to the women in their clinics when they're when they're around people who have received the vaccination, COVID vaccination, um, but they're not allowed to make any comments about that. So I hear what you're saying that it's rare and yet it, I see it, I hear it happening quite a bit. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna say something right now which you might interpret as sexist, but it's not. I'm simply talking medical wisdom, if you like. It's too easy to slough off women complaining about X as being nutcases, hysterical, hysterical reaction. It happens all the time. Women are more suggestible. They have more psychological disorders. Um, there's a thing called group hysteria, which is well-documented medically, in which women start all believing as a cohort that they've all got the same thing. Um, that's unquestionably out there. However, it's a brave doc who sloughs off this volume of, of observations, which are unexplained on the basis of group hysteria by suggestible women. That's a very dangerous place to be when the volume is is significant and it, it appears to be legitimate and unexplained that's why i said contagious vaccinosis um, needs to be thoroughly explored because it, the complaints are too many to be sloughed off as simply group hysteria Understood. Thank you. Jody, you have your hand up. You have another question. Please go ahead and you need to unmute. Um, doctor, can you tell me from your circles, how many physicians do you know of amongst all your friends that have told you they've been silenced uh, with these uh, issues that have been coming up with their patients when you say it's a dangerous situation to slough off so many women that are coming to them? Uh, I'm just thinking we need to get some sort of uh, circle together in, in, with all these physicians. And I understand people are concerned. Uh, they don't want to say anything for, for fear of losing their license. But uh, doctors who've taken an oath, is it not incumbent for them to stand up for the patients and say, hey, you know what? There's a lot going on here that I'm being silenced about. How can we go about bringing uh, those doctors together to actually stand together to say something's wrong here? I don't speak to a large number of physicians about that specifically. What I have spoken to many physicians over the course of my career about is the threat of the college on their livelihoods if they were to step out of line in terms of accepted um, positions of the college. It's, oh, you, cannot, you cannot understand, if you're not in the profession, the scale of that threat. It's extremely controlling. If you get a letter from the college, we call it the letter, if you get a letter like that from the college about your own 
behavior. It's petrifying. It, it means your livelihood is at stake. Or you may have to pay enormous legal fees to defend yourself with a track record that's very much stacked in their favor. And the prudent thing to do is to agree with them, apologize, grovel in their general direction, and promise never to do it again. Your livelihood is at stake, and this is serious, serious, veiled threat. It's so much easier to go with the flow and ignore that Hippocratic oath of informed consent, first do no harm. That's happening all over the place now, and it's, it's, it's putting physicians in these terrible situations, even if they've taken the time to get educated on it, which not all of them have. Um, they're in this awful vice of which way do I jump? And livelihood usually wins. If you're knowledgeable about this, and you don't put your standard in the ground and take whatever the punishment is, you become culpable in the consequences. And I say that not just to physicians, but all opinion leaders, whether it's the media uh, or politicians. Um, we're seeing you know, certain politicians in the province here taking the very brave step of leaving the, the UCP. But it's the failure of leaders to stand up. And as I might have said, Jennifer, in the last call, the church has gigantic power if it chooses to use it in a coordinated fashion. The state will always lose against the church. Always. If it's coordinated. And any church leader out there, if you're calling yourself a leader, if you're standing in the pulpit preaching, what would Jesus have? I'm not, listen, I'm an agnostic, okay? But my wife's a devout Roman Catholic, and I used to attend church with her before COVID um, to listen to the sermons. But what would Jesus have done in a circumstance like this? Would Jesus have gone quiet? No, he would not. He would have stood up and said what he felt was true. These church leaders are not looking after their flock when they see terrible things happening, quite apart from just not being able to worship. I'm talking about the all the consequences that we know of with lockdowns, um, the terrible things that happen with lockdowns um, across all strata of society and business. Um, for them to hide and not stand up like those three brave pastors have done in Alberta right now is utterly inexcusable. You're supposed to be protecting people in the very, in a, in a spiritual way, not in a medical way, like physicians, but in a spiritual way. And you're not doing that. And you're standing by, seeing carnage and hiding. 
And that's utterly unacceptable. Praying is not going to work. Knock, knock. Pick up the cudgels. Get out there. Bang the table. Act collectively. And the state will back down. <clears throat> Thank you. And what if, you know, how do we get the churches to act collectively? Because we see the pastors getting arrested and it probably creates fear for the for other churches to stand up. Like, what can we do as what can I do as a mom to support my church to collectively rise up with the other churches? Well, I understand you you started along that path, Jennifer, and I, I congratulate you. It's a magnificent um magnificent process you've got underway it's it's titrated unfortunately from what i understand to um simply conform to some restriction on the size of the congregation the churches should be open totally tomorrow shoulder to shoulder no mass no wiping of the communion nothing that is different from anything that's ever happened before not I, I admire the spunk to open up collectively 100 odd churches it's fantastic congratulations but again it's it to a certain extent it's 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 an it's it's complying partially um there's no need to limit the size of the congregation look at the <laughs> if you want to look at some specific local evidence those 4,000 people at the rodeo, that's not produced an, a, a rash of COVID infections. They were all sitting there shoulder to shoulder, enjoying a beer, watching this, watching stuff going on. Nothing happened. Um, no, sorry, church leaders. You are culpable in what's going on. You are knowledgeable. You're expected to lead. You're not. So there's a great question here. Um, so why, why do you, why is it that the, why is it that the government won't back down to the churches? How do the churches have this type of power? Well, I, I think it's it's the long history of church versus state and um, the separation of powers. The church really is a, a totally separate power from the state. It's established that painfully over a couple of thousand years that it is independent of the state and not to be subjected to the state if in fact there is a constraint of various freedoms that the churches stand for one of which is the freedom to assemble the freedom to to worship that's been a rock solid principle that the churches have fought for and won and maintained and now it's being given up. It's in the Charter of Rights. It's in the Charter of Rights. 
it's immutable and it should be vigorously fought for to, to, to maintain that, that, that reality of independence from the state. The power of the church is gigantic if it's coordinated. If every church in this country opened up this Sunday and said to hell with a lot of you, we're opening up exactly as we used to do. The, the state would back off, back off completely. You'd win, hands down, and, and everyone else would benefit from that. The store clerk that I saw yesterday when we were skiing, and she's wearing this mask for eight hours behind plexiglass, and she finds it hard to breathe, and she has to do it because she'll lose her job if she doesn't. Like, and if the churches can stand up for not just the members of their church, but for humanity as a whole, please, churches, please listen, rise up. I, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. It's easy to say. Um, it's it's easy for me to say, because although I'm registered with the College of Physicians as a practitioner, uh, in the nature of my business uh, does not require me to have that permit, as they now call it, not a license, a permit. Um, I could I could run my business perfectly well without it, but I'm sure as hell not going to give it up. And um, I, I, I would lust for my day in court to have a precedent case law that other physicians could shake in their face um, as their right to speak up. It won't get that far because they don't want a precedent that would undermine their power to silence and control. I have a question for you. For the doctors who are being silenced by the College of Physicians and Surgeons, what would happen if they actually speak up and say the truth? Like, don't they have insurance? Won't their insurance pay these expensive legal fees? No, 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 no way. The 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 insurance company, not company, the organization that uh, protects physicians from being sued, the CMPA, Canadian Medical Protective Association, would not go to bat for you if the college um, took away your license for standing up um, against these government restrictions. The, 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 there'll be no compensation for you. Uh, even, indeed, that organization does not pay you for the negative consequences. You have to sue the party on the other side in order to have some financial compensation. And it's extraordinarily difficult to sue government. The the Achilles heel legally of this mess um, uh, really is that it, it, it all revolves around medicine as opposed to politics. And the individual chief medical officers of health, or as I prefer to call them, chief medical officers of COVID, because this has become a one disease healthcare system in many respects, the Achilles heel of this whole mess is that these medical officers of health are physicians who are regulated by the College of Physicians, just like every other physician is. 
And so medical officers of health should be held to the same, if not higher, standards of care because they're practicing on society as opposed to an individual patient. They should be held to higher standards of, of, of care, which means the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, which lockdowns are obviously causing. And the second terribly important um, ethic is informed consent. We have to tell you what the side effects will be of doing this or an operation on that. It's our obligation to have you informed about the risks so that you as the patient can make a decision. In, these medical officers of COVID are in direct contravention of those two singular medical ethics and should be confronted by the colleges themselves. The colleges as so-called independent protectors of the public good from medicine, making sure that your doctor's not a pedophile or you're not, the doctor isn't having sex with his patients and so on. The colleges have a responsibility to demand of government why are you doing this? You are in contravention of these two central medical ethics. The colleges of physicians and surgeons across this country, and, and it's even worse in Ontario um, than Alberta, the colleges are basically the lapdogs of government. They salute in their general direction and agree to what a, whatever government wants them to do without being the independent protector of the public good. You have to look at history here as well. With marijuana, which the vast majority of physicians are opposed to, the colleges basically blessed the government's decision that they wanted to legalize marijuana. And actually, you know, have it recognized as a therapeutic benefit therapeutically which it is in certain very restricted areas of medicine. Um, but did the colleges object to that? No, the colleges just went along with the flow. They weren't banging the table saying, justify your actions, you know, why are you doing this? No, there's a pattern of behavior by the colleges to be simply government's enforcement arm for whatever government wants to do that impacts on medicine. They're not independent at all. They're government's lapdogs. And so the, there should be a, a, a well-funded and appropriately um, structured um, lawsuit against the College of Physicians and Surgeons, naming names, the registrar, naming all the members of council, which is even more important, because they should be individually charged with being responsible for not objecting to these various mandates and not voicing concerns about vaccination of children, for example. In my opinion, they're massively culpable 
in abrogating that fundamental obligation that they have to protect the public. They're not doing that. Instead, they're attacking physicians for daring to stand up and say the opposite. They say exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. They should not be attacking me, my freedom of speech to articulate my concerns publicly. They should let me do that and I'm prepared to defend it. But they, what they should, their focus of attack should not be on suppressing physicians. It should be on demanding of government. Exactly why are you doing this? They don't want to do that because that's not the history of the relationship. And that is inexcusable. Thank you. So let's say my family doctor um, woke up to this message and started speaking out. Um, so, so how would it, how could it work? Like the, the college, what they would send her a letter to what cease and desist, she would get a lawsuit. Could she still practice? Would she lose her license immediately? How, how does it work for my, my family doctor to stand up? Well, it's not immediate. Um, basically your, the first letter is we're putting you on notice that you're undermining public health. Um, you're basing your statements on, I'm talking as if the college, I'm talking like the college sent the content of a letter to me. Um, you're, you're spouting hearsay, not facts. You're undermining public health. We caution you to be very, very careful what you say to your patients. And in the particular communication that's called the messenger, they actually went on to say, we don't only caution what you say to your patients, we caution you what you say to your neighbors. It doesn't get more threatening than that, does it? Next time they're going to say, we actually know what you're thinking. You know, we can't allow that either. Um, the intimidation is brutal. It's intended to be brutal, but it's not immediate. Following that first letter, you have to respond as to why you're doing this terrible thing. And if they don't like that, they escalate it into what's called an investigation. And an investigation means that you have to represent yourself on your own nickel. It's a very dangerous game to go before the college without legal representation. And that can bankrupt you if you continue to contest their decisions, taking it right up to Supreme Court. Can bankrupt you. Give me an example of a number. Are we thinking that a doctor would pay, could could be spend like two hundred fifty thousand in legal fees? Well, give me an an idea. Oh yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> that 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 wouldn't be the end of it. Oh no, it can be more than that. Um, with the possibility of not winning and the difficulty of suing to recoup the money, um, unless the court awards you costs. Um, it's a very uh, long drawn out uh, process that's very expensive with great uncertainty as to the outcome. And so it's so much more 
tempting for a physician to say grovel in their general direction and say i'm awfully sorry i shouldn't have said that it was inappropriate i do apologize please forgive me you know take the dogs off and um and life can go on um but there's another way they can get at you um that process takes time and it costs a lot of money to defend yourself but for those physicians largely specialists who have hospital privileges it can be much more immediate it could simply be a because of the the hospitals are funded directly from the ministry they don't have to go through um alberta health services i don't think anyway um but all it would take you see the college has a process that they're obligated to go through it takes time and money as i said but if you've got hospital privileges all it could take is a call from the ministry or someone no record no emails no no trail of evidence and the call could go something like this get rid of dr x click immediately you lose your privileges that's what happened to dr hoff in bc in lytton he's still billing um, for his services in his clinic but he lost 40 percent of his income in the hospital because the hospital immediately cut off his privileges and they don't do that independently they do it because of a political direction a silent call unrecorded no evidence in court deny this guy privileges no recourse no warning boom um, that's the power of the state over physicians and poor dr hoff all he was doing was standing up and saying in this little town of lytton with 900 people i dr hoff a, a solo general practitioner it's my opinion that i'm seeing a lot of unexplained consequences of people who are being vaccinated that's his crime to simply go public and say i'm seeing a lot of bad stuff i i i personally don't having listened to him i i, I personally don't agree with his interpretation that they're all vaccine related i, I think there could be other explanations i'm talking as a specialist now but that's not the point the point is it is it is his professional freedom to stand up and say I see terrible things happening here and it needs to be looked at. I'm concerned about it. And that's all he did. That's all he did. And the immediate reaction was click. You've lost your hospital privileges. That's that's Orwellian. It's it's the jackboots of the state coming at you with no recourse unexpected and for the most absurd reasons it's it's fearful can you can you understand now the scale that an individual physician the scale of threat that an individual physician feels yes so bankruptcy loss of potential loss of license no ability to work they wouldn't even have the money to go back to school 
their reputation, their friends and family would likely be upset with them for speaking out, especially when the rest of the doctor's community is not speaking up. It's their entire identity, everything they've worked for, gone. Yes. Have I got your attention yet? You got my attention the first time I heard you speak weeks ago at a I'm rally. Not, I'm not exaggerating one word. If you want to speak to doctors privately over a beer, they would confirm everything that I've told you. Look, we, we, we seriously want to police the profession. There, there are terrible things that go on. All kinds of things that are culpable, that are medical malpractice. And the college investigates those. They don't necessarily do that expeditiously. And many a time, I, I think the outcome is, is inappropriate. I'm, I'm digressing here into, into their other activities of monitoring the profession for medical malpractice. But that's not the point. It's like the star chamber of the middle, middle ages. You're guilty until proven innocent. You have to defend yourself at your own cost. And it's so much easier to simply say, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, you know, I'll stop. A friend of mine who is pretty close to his family doctor uh, told him that that uh, he is recommending COVID vaccination to his patients. However, he will not allow his wife or children to get the vaccination. That sounds like a very immoral position to me. You know, in our last interview last week, you wore this T-shirt and um, and it said. Oh, I got. Oh, how'd you like this one? <laughs> Explain what that means. Well, it's a takeoff on Google, which of course is controlling us. Um, Gulag, a different spelling, G-U-L-A-G. Gulag was, of course, where you went, where you were sent in the Soviet Union if you said things against the state. They sent you to Gulag one of their internment camps for you to be re-educated, <laughs> which is exactly what Google's up to, um, censoring all and directing traffic and so on. It's, uh, you know, they're, they're part of the, um, part of the general movement to control society. Wow, thank you for explaining that. Cause you know, last time in our interview last Tuesday, you had a t-shirt that said COVID-1984 and I kind of smiled and nodded and giggled. I had no idea what that meant. I was born in 1980. I didn't know what that reference was. And then I looked it up. Oh my God. You're making a powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. George Orwell. Big brother. <laughs> Big brother is looking at you, boy. And we know what's going on um that was the the slide into fascism you know um yeah 1984 famous novel by uh, george orwell saw the future 
Yeah, I watched just like a 10 minute little summary of a piece of it. And oh my God, that's what's happening. It's what's happening right now. He saw the future. Very much he saw, so. He saw the future. He nailed it. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing in COVID is merely one small example of that um, societal control that uh, that he described. Thank you, Chris, uh, CL, you have your hand up. Can you please go ahead and you need to unmute. You're talking to me? Is that me you're talking to? So doc, listening to all this going on, I've talked to my own personal doctor about it, right? And literally my doctor's my friend, but even when I went, when we had the H1N1 vaccines come out, I was asking him about my my children and myself or whatever. And he literally said to me, he said, I'm supposed to tell you that you need to get it. I had to get it so I could keep my license. However, my wife and children are not getting it. So what does that tell you, right? Like, But he literally had me, you know, read between the lines, so to speak. It sounds like, you know, we kind of get into an echo chamber here a little bit where we're all in agreement. How do we go about like actually making an impact with this? For me, based on from what I heard in this conversation, it's going to take somebody like yourself and retired, not current physicians that are afraid of losing their license because, I, you know, to ask somebody to step up and completely lose their livelihood and be a martyr, pretty difficult to get somebody on board, even if they agree. But it sounds like it's going to take people like yourself and retired physicians who are going to be able to get on board and start kind of swaying people's opinion. Um, you're very perceptive. I'm sorry, I missed your name. Chris, sorry, Chris. Yeah, yes, Chris, you nailed, you nailed it. You nailed it. There's a large number of physicians out there who are retired, who have given up their college membership simply because it costs money to keep it going. And there's no, pu no purpose if you're not practicing medicine anymore. Um, retired physicians could be banded together as a group that has nothing to fear from the college and wishing to express themselves on matters that they were previously suppressed on. And typically, of course, being retired, there'd be an older age group. Um, translation for <laughs> translation, being older, better trained, more traditional, more ethical, because of the way we were trained in that period of time which by the way i call bc um not before christ it stands for before covid there's a period of time called bc <laughs> when, <laughs> when things were different um but there there is a there is a it's not been it's not been operationalized actually anywhere internationally I wish I had the time to do it. I, I don't with all the other commitments that I have. That there is a huge need for an international movement of retired physicians, not just nationally, who are prepared to make collective statements without fear of retribution. And I wish I had the time to do that. I, I just I just don't, I'm afraid. Well, I'll volunteer. If you need to, if you need a body to help and kind of put time in to help you do that, I would love to do that. 
Because my concern is with everything going on, even when we attend these rallies, is we're all preaching to the choir and like-minded people. Now it's, right. you know, I don't have a PhD behind my name. I'm not or an MD behind my name. So I get dismissed very easy. But somebody like yourself, like retired physicians that people respect are going to, I, I think that's what it's going to take is a group of uh, like a lot of physicians getting out and speaking out against this before we get people to listen. So if there's anything that I could help out with, Doc, please let me know. Well, I, I, I passed that idea by um, someone much more capable than me of organizing things. Um, John Carpe, who runs the uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom in Calgary. They're, they're the organization, nonprofit, running the four lawsuits against the four Western provinces. The one in Manitoba is currently underway. Um, the others will follow. Um, but similarly, John, who I know personally and deeply respect, um, he's being pulled every which way on the litigation side of things. Um, he just doesn't have the resources or time to to pull that together. Um, so, I, you know, I, <laughs> you know, you, you, you get when you know so much, and I'm not trying to be pompous here. But when you know so much and you, 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 you're trying to do your level best as an individual with no, no department behind you, no research team, no nothing, you know, you're it, um, you know, trying to do the best I can with interviews and things like this, rallies and so on. Um, as you say, you're speaking to the preaching to the choir. Um, it, it, it takes a lot to put together an effective national, let alone international organization that um, is appropriately funded, has the infrastructure to support it in terms of a website and messaging, at least a secretary, someone who can field the phones and, um, and be in front of the media, you know, spokespeople and so on. It, it's it's not a simple matter to be effective it has to be well funded and well organized um and there's a des as you've identified brilliantly it, there's a desperate need for that i just i just wish i had the time to do it but i uh, i i would be i would participate um i'd be a spokesperson even um even though i'm still registered with the college um but it it needs to get someone needs to get it off the ground. I'll do it. I'll do it. I didn't want to put you on the spot. I'll do it. <laughs> I'm 100 behind this. Um, I thought you might say that. Yeah, um, my business my business partner Cecilia and I we uh, that's what we do. We bring these we bring these things to light. So uh, we have a team. We we I mean what we really do is we help entrepreneurs increase their income working fewer hours helping more people uh, and we're, we're, we're building our team so we're going to build our team and we're going to do this and chris we're going to get your help with it and uh and dr roger we're gonna we're gonna have you in that as well but we're gonna lead this we're doing it okay really just let me know what you need i'll help out i'm yeah. there you thank can you. rope me you can rope me in jennifer thank you both so much so we do need to wrap up. It is, uh, we've been now over 40, uh, an hour and 45 minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Roger. Um, Cecilia and I need, do need to get some work done today. So I'm going to go into a meeting with her. Um, and I'm an, I, have, I have a request of two people. 
And I don't want either of these people to answer right here. Dr. Roger, one is for you and I don't want an answer right now. Please just message me or call me after. There is a worldwide walk for freedom rally on Saturday, May 29th in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I know you're in Edmonton and it is organized by Brad Kerrigan of Walk for Freedom. And I would like to invite you to come and be with us there. Please let me know if you're available privately. And then number two, the pastor of my church, I ask you to please be there. Your ministry is like a rock concert and you will command attention and people, even people just walking by who aren't a part of the rally will hear your music and come and listen and learn. Pastor, please be there. And um, I look forward to both of your responses. Dr. Roger, is there anything you want to finish up by saying? Um, don't believe anything you're told. Thank you very much for having me on your show, your, your group. It's been a pleasure. Doctor, thank you so much. You are, you are a hero. You are going on, you are framed on my son's wall. I will, I will put a picture up uh, showing that you and me on, on my son's wall. You are a hero and I thank you so, so much. I had my hair cut this morning, especially for you lot. Yeah. I'm so honored. <laughs> Who did it? <laughs> Who cut your uh, hair? A lady comes to our house, actually, um, because I, I will not wear a mask for anyone. And um, she graciously comes to our house. It's beautiful. Eros and I are going to make a live video uh, for, for Jason Kenny. Uh, or we're doing arts and crafts together and we're going to be cutting up our masks. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I will pee that's, my pants before putting a mask on to use a bathroom. In a store. It's very environmentally sensitive too to find alternative purposes for them. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Nice chatting with you all. Then thank bye you bye. everyone for being here. Bye bye. Bye bye.